0: Tonight on this recorded edition of Extension 720, an interview with Henry Kissinger, um, obviously a man of considerable importance and continuing significance in the discussion of America's role in the world. His new book, Does America Need a Foreign Policy Towards a Diplomacy for the 21st Century, has just been published by Simon & Schuster. Dr. Kissinger, I want to begin with something immediately current. In this book, You endorse uh, the plan of the current administration to go forward with uh, what they're now calling national missile defense, what we used to call... They've uh, dropped the word national now. Just missile defense because Because they want to apply it also to the allies. To serve the rest of the world, possibly even including Russia, though that's a little bit unclear. And that was on the table in the conference between President Bush and President Putin. Uh, in Slovenia just a few days ago. And then, only yesterday, June 18th, uh, President Putin had a a conversation with a number of American reporters back in Moscow. And let me just read quickly from the New York Times account, which comes this very day. Um, President Vladimir V Putin said today that if the United States proceeded on its own to construct a missile defense shield over its territory, that of its allies Russia would eventually upgrade its strategic nuclear arsenal with multiple warheads, reversing an achievement of arms control in recent decades to ensure that it would be able to overwhelm such a shield. Doesn't it sound as if uh, what we might very well generate if we go forward with this plan for missile defense is a renewal of the arms race that characterized the long dreadful run
1: of the Cold War? Well, let me first uh, explain the justification for missile defense Uh, First of all, of course missiles exist already in many countries. They're spreading Missile technology its nuclear warheads are spreading and missiles are spreading and I do not see how the president of the United States or any other democratic leader who has the option can say I will leave my population totally vulnerable Anything that might happen uh, in the name of what? Why would one not provide at least a rudimentary defense against accidents, unauthorized launches, small scale blackmail, and what third countries or fifth countries like Iraq, Iran, and so forth can do to one? Now, will it start an arms race? Uh, well, Putin is suggesting that he will put aside
0: Start Two, and go back to multiple warheads, which uh, supposedly they were
1: supposed to disarm, just as we are disarming. That's right. Uh, uh, those are two separate problems. The argument why why uh, uh, the reason the uh, Start Two agreement uh, requires the dismantling of multiple warheads, uh, uh, which incidentally has not yet been done, I, I, I believe. Uh, is in order to make a first strike more difficult because if you need one missile to destroy one missile? Uh, it becomes very difficult to do uh, to, to do uh, the targeting uh, on the other hand uh, I Think a first strike aimed at the land-based forces of a country It's becoming less and less likely anyway mm. because most of our nuclear forces on submarines. Yeah. and Uh, So I would not be particularly disturbed if he put back uh, some of his multiple warheads. Secondly, Russia has maybe 6,000 warheads now, which they cannot maintain, and they're going to reduce those anyway, and almost and certainly by uh, by agreement, and they will always have enough left to overwhelm any foreseeable missile defense that we have if they want an all-out attack. I think it is reasonable to have discussions with Russia and other countries about levels of missile defense which do not start an arms race and which uh, at the same time protect one against the sort of dangers one is most worried about. Isn't one protected from madness on the part of the
0: elites of so-called rogue nations, uh, not by a conceived, uh, so far merely hypothesized, missile defense mounted in space? but rather by the old doctrine of, um, of retaliation. Wouldn't that, well, in fact, inhibit even the maddest uh, national leader from
1: hitting us with one or
0: two missiles that he might have in his control?
1: Well, uh, first of all, what do you do, however, when if a bomb hits Chicago and you then say, I left you totally defenseless even though I could have stopped it, after three million or more people have been killed and all of life in this area is uh, is disrupted uh, I'm not saying this will happen, and I'm not saying that retaliation will not uh, Always work, but if you conceive a situation in which say Saddam Hussein during the Gulf War had had nuclear weapons And missiles to deliver them he might have attempted to hold Europe or America hostage mm-hmm and we might have been much more reluctant to engage ourselves. So the upper, the operation of these uh, small-scale weapon, uh, weapon systems is not so much that they uh, will be necessarily used against the United States, but they may inhibit things that we should be doing uh, for the protection of ourselves and uh, of our allies.
0: My colleague at the University of Chicago, John Mearsheimer, did an article, 1991 thereabouts, I believe in Atlantic, in which he said, you're going to miss, we are going to miss the Cold War. This was after the collapse of uh, the communist regimes of Eastern Europe and after, I think, the dismantlement uh, of the Soviet Union. Uh, His point was, of course, uh, that that great polarity was in a way a stabilizing sort of tension. Uh, but once
1: it was withdrawn, who, kn- who knew what new devils would emerge? Was he right? He had a, he had a point, uh, especially for the United States. I mean, we are an unusual country. We are the only major country that has never had a powerful neighbor. We are the only major country that really could make itself believe that whether we participated in international affairs or not depended on us, and we're the only major country that believed. That we could solve problems in definite time frames. So as long as the Soviet Union was around We had a clear-cut danger. It ended the dispute whether we should be engaged or shouldn't be engaged It also ended the dispute about should there be a time limit uh, to our effort uh, But with the collapse of the Soviet Union we are in a world for which our historical experience prepares us less But which has all kinds of flashpoints around it and which moreover is more interconnected than the world has ever been and That is a subtle and complex challenge for America In this book you address not for
0: the first time when I say this book I refer of course to the new volume does America need a foreign policy that volume by Henry Kissinger just recently published by Simon Schuster, and you address, as I say, not for the first time, the question of whether the Wilsonian doctrine of intervention in the world in general pursuit of uh, the values of democracy and in general opposition to uh, modes of uh, uh, inhumane treatment of populations by despots, that this Wilsonian doctrine, earlier condemned by George Kennan, uh, remains a great temptation was in some sense revived by President Clinton during his eight years in office, but is really a dreadful
1: lure to which we should not be attracted. uh, This is correct up to a point. The United States, being the nation it is, will uh, will always stand for democracy, humane values, and human rights. The question is, to what, how far do we go in defence of these? The question is, do we put our military exactly. forces in that hazard is, in defence of those? Roads? That is the key issue, and uh, and also how do we related to other issues in the world? For example, uh, we were very active in overthrowing the government of in Indonesia. We didn't overthrow it directly, but we made a series of conditions for economic aid, which had the practical consequence of overthrowing the military government, which was surely not democratic. But one of the results of doing this without having a clear alternative in mind is an extraordinarily chaotic situation in which corruption is still existent Uh, the country is falling apart. The president is about to be impeached. The president is in the process of being impeached and so therefore the United States, there is a limit to what the United States can accomplish. Uh, We intervened in Kosovo militarily which I opposed before we did it and supported once we were engaged but as a result we now face, we are faced with a situation in which Uh, the Kosovo will attempt to make itself independent. We become an occupying force. Uh, If Kosovo becomes an independent state, the same situation will arise in Macedonia that had existed in Kosovo. Most Americans barely know Mm -hmm. where that place is, and therefore we are getting into an increasingly complex situation. Uh, And uh, my basic view is when one risks American lives, one must be in a position to explain to the mothers uh, what the American interest was in doing that.
0: You have a similar view if you look at our recent foreign affairs history, not only of our intervention in Kosovo, but our intervention in Bosnia, I think, and
1: in Somalia and in various and uh, in Haiti. yeah know. I'm bipartisan. In my upright, I thought in Somalia again, there was starvation. Uh, I strongly supported (laughs) massive uh, economic aid and and uh, the delivery of food supplies. Uh, But even this happened in the first Bush administration, Uh, but from the first moment that we sent troops, I wrote articles saying how are we going to get them out how can we uh, li- uh, how can we stay there without attempting to create a central government? How can we avoid being caught in the civil war? And so I objected to the use of military force to deliver food. I would not have objected. I would strongly have supported anything short of the sending of military force into Somalia.
0: Here's a, a hard one, I think, but it is in the same general realm of concern. And it, ref- it relates to, um, I think, uh, some influence exerted for the American government by a successor of yours as Secretary of State, namely Madeleine Albright. Not when she was Secretary, but rather when she was the ambassador to the UN, as you well remember. Uh, as the troubles in Rwanda uh, seemed to be getting more and more tense and more and more dangerous, the UN force that was already present in Rwanda was in some considerable part withdrawn. Withdrawn we are we've been given to understand uh, on the basis as much as anything else of urgings by uh, Mrs. Albright uh, though undoubtedly she was acting for her government but um, the withdrawal of those UN troops is interpreted by some as having been sort of the signal or the trigger which ignited the assault upon the Tutsi by called for by the Hutu government, an assault which probably killed at least half a million, possibly three-quarters of Yeah,
1: by, by machete. I mean, this was individual killing. This it was. was. not a weapon of mass destruction. You know, yeah. funnily enough, uh, with respect to Rwanda, uh, I would have been more sympathetic to intervention because— And not to withdrawal of UN I forces. I would have been strongly opposed to the withdrawal of UN, of UN forces because— in, in all these situations in Africa, or at least the ones that I know, Rwanda, Sierra Leone, very small forces can uh, control the situation. There's not a historical context as there is in Kosovo and to a certain extent in Bosnia that will tie you down forever. Uh, it doesn't particularly require the presence of American forces. Uh, uh, one ought to be able to create an uh, standby force for in Africa composed largely of African nations with some backing from Europe and the United States which can deal with atrocities like Rwanda and Sierra Leone where very small forces a few thousand could have uh, could have controlled the situation without an extended conflict and where in fact if one wanted to be uh, unorthodox, one could actually create special units uh, for that purpose, where people volunteer ahead of time, like the French Foreign Legion was, except it wouldn't be foreigners, uh, uh, that volunteer for these special assignments. Then one must ask in the modern phrase,
0: what were they thinking? Uh, I have had occasion to talk with both Mrs. Albright and with Warren Christopher. And I've put to them questions about this particular incident. And uh, I don't know that I've had a clear answer. I suppose ultimately the instruction to uh, get out of Rwanda came from the White House. But why? Well,
1: in fairness, probably nobody imagined that such a mass slaughter could happen. Of course not. Or or that any mass slaughter could happen. And they probably thought they didn't want to be in the middle between minor skirmishes uh, that might go on, and they didn't want to be accused of having been... uh, 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 of keeping one of these ethnic groups, uh, the Hutus, from uh, from taking over the country. But I don't know what they were thinking, because I, I've never discussed this with them. And I've always been puzzled myself. I also don't know what they were thinking in Sierra Leone, hmm. where they forced a coalition government, including the killers. Mm-hmm.
0: You are not then in regular communicative contact, or at least you were not. I was not in
1: regular communicative contact. During the
0: Clinton years?
1: No, uh, I was not in communicative contact about Africa in the Clinton years. I generally (laughs) had some idea of what they were thinking about Europe and Asia.
0: Mm -hmm. What is your role these days? Of course, I know you have your private consulting firm, um,
1: but (coughs) are you more fully in touch? Now that we've got a Republican administration, well, first of all, my private consulting firm does not take money from governments, so we don't advise governments. Oh, of course, uh, I. Well, many of the people in the Clinton, in the new Bush administration, are friends of mine for a long time, so I have easier access to them. I don't have any formal position. I know I can get my views known if I have a compulsion. And they occasionally call me and ask me or tell me what they're doing.
0: Well, of course, your new book, Does America Need a Foreign Policy, answers itself. Uh, It's a rhetorical question, um, and indeed you go on to subtitle it towards a diplomacy for the 21st century. One might properly view this as a, uh, uh, a message to the current
1: administration and to those that may immediately succeed it. Well, I have been in high office, and I know that... The last thing one usually does is to read a book uh, to, to get instructions. Well somebody on the staff reads it for you. But somebody on the staff may read it, but my major attempt was to write something that the ordinary concerned person could read, yeah. because the way of thinking that is now required for foreign policy, so different from our historical experience. And that is exactly what I, want. I wanted. to make some contribution to that.
0: And that very theme, which is crucial to this book, set which frames the book, is one I want to get to. We've got some commercials coming in a moment. Then I very much want to get you talking about the system of states that emerged after the Treaty of Westphalia. That's how you have framed it. And the way in which that system of states and balance of power Uh, relations between states and between groups of states may still be feasible and workable or may not be. We will go on with that uh, more abstract overview with uh, Henry Kissinger right after we pause for these words. And we return to Dr. Henry Kissinger. We are drawing from his very important new book, Does America Need a Foreign Policy? Towards a Diplomacy for the 21st Century. Simon & Schuster, the publishers, available wherever they sell real books, undoubtedly, uh, quickly rising to the top of the New York Times and other bestseller lists. I was uh, uh, posing the question a moment ago. You do say in this book, as you did in your earlier uh, magisterial volume, uh, tired though that adjective may be, diplomacy, uh, that the modern system of states and of the balance of power kind of realism, uh, real politique sort of realism about how you manage international affairs, really emerges uh, at the time of the Peace of Westphalia, which really ends the Thirty Years' War. Uh, Do you see that system as still persisting, or has it undergone a basic change with the end of the Cold War?
1: Uh, Well, let me first explain what the system uh, was. before the Treaty of Westphalia, there were ideas of universal church, universal empire, uh, which broke down with the uh, with the reformation, so that various reli- two religions, uh, Protestant and Catholic, were f- uh, fighting with each other, and that justified, in the minds of those of th- those centuries, the intervention of one state of of what they weren't really states in those days, the intervention in other territories in order to convert the populations, and this culminated in the 30 years war which killed with in effect handheld weapons uh, up to 40% of the population of Central Europe so it was a terrible slaughter At the end of the, that war the people, the uh, conviction was that sort of uh, genocidal war should be ended and the only way to end it was to uh, to prohibit the intervention of one state in the territory of another state. Including that, intervention concerning the religious uh, commitments. Above all, the religious convictions. Forced upon them by their rulers. And so, exactly. And therefore, the doctrine of sovereignty that evolved then in the 17th century was the human rights slogan of that day, because mm-hmm. it, it reduced in the minds of the advocates, human suffering, and the possibility of uh, outside uh, pressures. Now that system of states then operated for 300 years or so on the doc- on the principle that the domestic affairs of of uh, states uh, were inviolate uh, and were not subject to international jurisdiction. I would say that system of states evolved on that basis, but also
0: augmented by the development of uh, war technology. That is, the Clausewitzian reality about continuing diplomatic policy by other means, namely war,
1: became all the more feasible when you could deliver strong blows. Right. Uh, That developed gradually then as the state system Mm -hmm. existed. And also funnily enough, as the states became more democratic, because that enabled the governments, when you had the the kings that ruled by divine right, they could not strangely enough demand of their subjects exactions that democratic governments could because they didn't want revolutions. So you couldn't have income taxes or, or mm-hmm. you, you couldn't mobilise the nation to the extent after the French Revolution. You could then mobilize the national resources to a degree that was unprecedented and this in turn made war a uh, much more general instrument of policy all the wars occurred uh, Before that less damaging than they were uh, from then on now. We are in this situation economics are globalized communications are are global uh, but the political system is still based on the nation-state uh, when things go wrong in the economic field or in any other field, the demand of the democratic public and of any public is of its government to set it right. So, when a decision is taken, it's taken almost invariably, it's a national political decision. Now, how can one reconcile national politics with international necessities? That is the dominant uh, problem of our period. A friend, a friend of mine, Bob Schmuel, um, head of the American
0: Studies Program at um, Notre Dame University, is a political observer and journalist of considerable uh, insight. He did a book some years ago, focused really on American domestic politics, but titled "Statecraft versus Stagecraft." It occurred to me while reading your new book that, in a way, you are saying that on the inter- in the international sphere, uh, we have to maintain. Uh, statecraft, but we are in danger of relapsing into stagecraft, i.e. serving, uh, making policy decisions concerning the uh, countries in other parts of the world in a way that will guarantee or preserve electoral advantage at
1: home. Well, and uh, it's another problem which goes back to what we said at the beginning of of our discussion, namely with the absence of of an outside danger of the traditional in the traditional Mm -hmm. sense, uh, domestic politics becomes uh, overwhelming and becomes uh, dominant, so that more and more countries are being driven by immediate domestic uh, imperatives, and they, in turn, arise without any particular view of the international uh, situation. And that is one of the, uh, the paradoxes of this uh, of this period.
0: So, in that situation, as uh, it uh, has emerged and evolved to the present moment, what then are the major problems confronting the United States with regard
1: to its foreign policy? Well, the major problem, there a number of major problems. First is, and this sounds very professorial, but it is to recognize the different necessities of different regions. Uh, Americans, due to our history, tend to believe there's one universal recipe that can be applied all over the world. And that recipe tends to be uh, that economic well-being is the dominant concern of most people, that wars are unnatural, and that now, that doctrine, that American doctrine, has considerable applicability in Europe, And in much of the Western Hemisphere, and so in the North Atlantic. When you go to Asia, however, you're dealing with countries that are in political, that look at each other the way 19th century European states look at each other. It's the part in the world where military budgets are rising, where conflict between states is not impossible, it's not likely, but it's not out of the question, and where they look at each other very similarly. now there, the United States has the challenge of how it can participate in the operation of a balance of power system, because this is what it amounts to. And we see, for example, in our relations with China, a great temptation to maneuver China or to view China in the same perspective as we did the Soviet Union. And Well, how the, shall we view China?
0: Years ago, uh, an American fellow traveler who... Uh, followed the Chinese Red Army? Was it Edgar Snow or somebody else wrote a book titled Red Star Rising? Edgar Snow. Uh, is that Red Star still rising? Do they have uh, hegemonic intentions towards uh, the general Asian sphere, or towards the rest of the world?
1: Uh, or neither uh, just make one more point Please. before we go back to that? The third point is that, that I wanted to make is when we look at, at the uh, globe, when we look at the Middle East, if, if uh, Asia is like 19th-century Europe, the Middle East is like 17th-century <laughs> Europe. Yeah. You know, period of religious mm-hmm. and ideological conflict underlying. Uh, I'll get back to your point about China. Uh, one has to take this in a, in a certain perspective. Uh, first of all, I don't think China is a communist country. Uh, China is governed by a party that calls itself communist that has no similarity to the communist parties of the Soviet Union and of Eastern Europe as they existed. It makes no universal claims, it does not use Marxist slogans, Uh, it calls itself a socialist market economy, whatever that means. Uh, And it is more similar to the Mexican system before it was democratized, that is, it's a one-party state, uh, but it's not particularly a communist state now. Does it have hegemonic aspirations? Uh, China has made tremendous progress since I first went there in uh, in 1971 uh, but uh, It is still a, Compared to us a backward country and let me illustrate this The military budget the published military budget of China is 12 billion dollars Let's say they're hiding eight Billion, to so give them 20 billion, which would be high. Uh, the Indian military budget is published as about 10 to 12 billion dollars. The Japanese military budget, it, if we're talking 1999 figures, is uh, 49 billion dollars. Our military budget is 350 billion dollars. So where are the Chinese going to achieve hegemony? They can't even achieve it vis-a-vis Japan. Vis-a-vis their immediate neighbors now somewhere along the line in 30 years if they continue to grow at the present rate uh, Without interruption which has never happened before They might play with the idea of becoming a hegemonic power, but I don't see anything we can do today That affects that particular decision except perhaps to create in the Chinese people's mind the idea that we are a permanent enemy and so we do not face from China an immediate danger. We face a regime that has some human rights practices uh, to which we strongly and correctly object. Uh, we have a particular dispute with it over uh, Taiwan Taiwan, and the method by which Taiwan uh, should be dealt with. But we do not have a general challenge from them because they haven't challenged us anywhere else.
0: If I can revert back to what we were talking about at the beginning of this conversation, namely missile defense, there are those who uh, suggest that the country we are really worried about with regard to a potential nuclear assault is China, which to be sure doesn't have a nuclear force equal to that of England or France, let alone of the United States, but they seem to be... um, committing a good deal of scientific effort, if not of, and probably also of their capital, into building a missile force, and they seem to have, one way or another, got their hands on a good deal of American technology to speed them along.
1: Uh, the latter is probably is, is probably true. Uh, I do not believe that the Chinese, uh, my understanding is that the Chinese right now have between 30 and 50 missiles. Uh, And with single warheads, so it would take them 10 to 15 years, to, uh, even then, uh, to get any respectable size. Mm -hmm. I don't think the danger from China is a nuclear attack on the United States. It's uncharacteristic. This is a society that has existed for 5,000 years. They defeat their enemies not by a massive, sudden assault, but by endurance, but by outlasting them. Uh, So if we get into conflict with China, it is much more likely to be because China as its strength grows Will insist on being treated by its neighbors With respect and deference and that gradually this will create a situation Where we believe that to that hegemony of China over Asia is unacceptable to us uh, as it should be It should be unacceptable to us the hegemony of any country Uh, And that that would lead to a conflict, but I do not believe a conflict that China would ever conceive an all-out attack on the United States. They've never done that in their history, conduct wars that way, and it is so against their national character, and it's so improbable that I do not believe that this is, is likely. Is it equally improbable that they will not develop the intention of
0: that Japan had Japan wanted to create what at the time of the beginning of World War two they called the I think the greater East Asia co-prosperity no that's here developed do they want to have economic dominance and sort of programmatic dominance over Asia
1: well the Chinese are a Confucian society and therefore they believe in hierarchy and therefore they believe that the that there usually has to be a ruler and uh, So it would be not unnatural for them to believe that if their achievements deserve it, as they may, that they should have a dominant position in Asia. If they (laughs) attempt it, however, uh, they will not find that all that easy because they have powerful neighbors. They have India, uh, they have Russia. Which has
0: crossed the billion mark in population, I believe.
1: Likelihood is that Indian population will exceed that of uh, china The yeah. question is, can they organize it effectively? But India, in fact, has the technology and the educational background and the civil service to, uh, to evolve on paper more rapidly than China. Unfortunately, they have a bureaucracy left by England and trained at the London School of Economics. <coughs> that it's the last socialist bastion so it is not they also their state system is uh, makes uh, they, they get very little foreign investment they should be getting a lot more but at any rate, they'll run up against India they'll run up against Japan, and they'll run up against us uh so uh it is certainly the growing power of China it's something we should think about and uh, but it is not something we can we should deal with the same way we dealt with the Soviet Union. Um, a generalized question, a question uh, of
0: ultimate principle. Um, I've always found a statement by Vajatius, fourth century AD Roman uh, writer, qui desiderat pacem preparat bellum, he who desires peace should prepare for war. Must all of this, must international relations still be anchored in?
1: the threat of recourse to arms? Uh, to some extent, but to a more limited extent than before. In Traditionally, or historically, nations could expand their power uh, best, or at least in their mind best, by expansion, by getting territory and populations and resources. Uh, today, many nations have become Major forces in international affairs by developing their own internal resources and by uh, developing their own technology. One doesn't need the resources and populations of, mm. uh, of other countries. Uh, and uh, so uh, this is a deterrent. Secondly, uh, so the incentive is less. Uh, secondly, the damage of war is so huge right now uh, Which of the statesmen that originated World War one would have entered that war had know, had they known what the world would look like at the end in 1918 When almost every governmental structure was destroyed uh, by the war, but they didn't know that in 1914 mm-hmm. They thought it would be a brief war in 1939 when the Second World War broke out uh, it was started by men who was probably certifiably mad. It was uh, was was Hitler. Nothing could have uh, could have saved uh, uh, that situation. But the normal incentives for war are less, uh, and the penalties for war are much greater. So that I think, as a general rule, uh, the recourse to war, especially uh, between major powers, is going to be much less in the this century than it was in the 20th century. We are
0: drawing from various chapters in the new book by Dr. Henry Kissinger, Does America Need a Foreign Policy? One chapter we haven't touched upon yet, though you made reference to the conflict that it addresses, uh, is the chapter on the Middle East and the relations between Israel and the Palestinian Authority, particularly and the surrounding uh, uh, Islamic states uh, more generally. Some commercials coming once again after that. Let us go back to the Middle East, which Probably exhausted you a long time ago when you were doing the Kissinger shuttle, uh, trying to uh, pacify that situation, which remains still not pacified. We return directly to conversation with Henry Kissinger after these words. And we return to Henry Kissinger. And let me turn you directly to the chapter of Does America Need a Foreign Policy? The new book published by Simon Schuster, the chapter concerned with the Middle East. At the moment, Things look quite dreadful there, don't they?
1: Uh, yes and no. Compared to the hopes of last year, they look very retro. Compared to the realities of last year, I actually think uh, that some progress is being made. I know this sounds paradoxical, but last year uh, the goal was to achieve a permanent peace, to write to write it all down on mm-hmm. a piece of paper. That was the Oslo vision. As yeah, were. that was yeah. the culmination of the Oslo vision. Yeah. And uh, President Clinton invited the Arafat and then Israeli Prime Minister Barak to Camp uh, David uh, to settle in one week uh, all the issues. Now, as I've indicated earlier in this program, the Middle East is very similar to the uh, 30 years war period in In Europe, that is, it's fundamental philosophical and religious conflict. And so that the idea that this could be settled in seven days was already, uh, uh, frankly, preposterous. Then the idea that uh, you could deal with the holy places, territorial boundaries, uh, in one document. And that this document then would last for all eternity, absolutely was contrary to the realities uh, of the region. The practical consequence of this was (laughs) that each side was being asked to make decisions that ran totally counter to the convictions of their populations, so that sooner or later uh, some explosion was almost unavoidable. Permit a question
0: Uh, in the middle of your discourse. uh, You can call it... uh an attempt to produce the miraculous in seven days. But you could also say there's sort of a 50-year lead-up to those seven
1: days. Sure, And these issues have been under discussion for a long, long time. But my point is they're not soluble. They're intrinsically insoluble? No, they're not intrinsically, but they have to be solved, if at all, by by experience. And uh, they are not soluble in one document that that you can sign. And therefore and uh, in fairness I must say that uh, I too had written before this final negotiation that there had been so much history that perhaps one should talk about everything simultaneously rather than to segment it. Uh, but it never occurred to me that you would talk about it simultaneously in one uh, one-week stretch or in one document. But be that as it may. Uh, even granting that I too uh, misjudged this uh, to some extent. Uh, I believe that uh, we are now going through a process in which both sides are learning the limits of their capabilities. Uh, About two weeks before he died, somebody said to uh, the Australian foreign minister, was talking to Rabin and said to Rabin, trying to persuade him of something, he said, but I'm talking to the converted. Rabin said, no, not to the converted. You're talking to the committed, which meant he'd really have preferred to win, but uh, realized that that was no no longer possible. Now I think that with luck, (laughs) uh, both sides, uh, having gone through all of this, are approaching the point where they realize the limits of what they can impose on each other. And out of this, I hope that there will emerge, and expect that there will emerge a negotiation of a practical solution that doesn't call itself permanent, that may not last indefinitely, but that will create enough of a long pause so that other relationships can evolve in that period. Let me counter that with the worst case,
0: a worst case interpretation. I'm not sure this is true, but I read it in various sources, and that is that, um, Arafat doesn't really rule the Palestinian Authority, he is much controlled by what in the current jargon is called the street, he's controlled by Hamas and Hezbollah, Uh, and uh, they are, uh, particularly Hamas is absolutely negative, they say never, not an inch, we will take back all of uh, of Palestine, and we will, if not expel the Jews and kick them into the sea, there will be no longer an Israeli state. And we no, will no, that settle... Is
1: undoubtedly... A strong... And
0: Arafat lives probably, despite his CIA I... guard <laughs> and his own guard, he probably lives
1: in, uh, in fear of assassination. I don't count on Arafat as a person, uh, I, and I think this is perfectly possible, but paradoxically, I believe that the Hamas came to the conviction that they could do this. Which was their preference all along, yeah. by the it's by the uh, dovish side of the Israeli politics, when the Israelis withdrew so uh, catastrophically mm-hmm. uh, from and so so rapidly from Lebanon, leaving behind all the people that had been supporting them and that they had supported yeah. for 20 years. And that was so, Barack's decision. That was but Barak's decision, and at any rate, the manner, uh, they... They ran away. Uh, looked like yeah. like they were running away, and I think now, the view of some of the radical groups in the Arab world is that the Israelis have no endurance, uh, and that they can uh, uh, exhaust them and get a repetition of this within Israel.
0: And realists like Amos Perlmutter and others say, well, even if they settle, Even if they get the settlement you're now talking about, it's only provisional, and they're going to outbreed the Israelis and ultimately dominate them. And they look forward in the middle range or in the long run, they look forward to swamping
1: the Jews and to taking back all of Israel. That I believe is certainly true of the generation that is there now. Uh, But Israel, if it has an opportunity to make a peace that doesn't threaten its security, uh, has no option about accepting it, because what is its alternative? Uh, I think that the best if if one looks at the the, uh, Arab world the kind of of Arabs who have the view of Israeli does namely of a permanent reconciliation Mm -hmm. is tiny Uh, What are called Arab moderates are generally people who believe uh, who accept uh, Israel the way France accepted the German annexation of Alsace-Lorraine. That is something that uh, they have, that re- reality imposes on them. A hard that, pill to swallow. Right. And they will reverse, yeah. if they ever have an opportunity. And therefore, after any agreement, the task of Israel is to make sure that the opportunity doesn't arise. And That, you be- that does not disappear. Do you
0: believe that trade possibilities and education possibilities well, and
1: I, look, will you, ultimately reverse the situation? Look, uh, if you... If you want to be utopian, mm. you can say, with luck, with wisdom, you, you, you start a big economic aid program for the Palestinian state, you make it a moderate middle class state with democracy. Uh, and I think one should try to do something like that. Do I think this is likely to happen? No, I think throughout the Muslim world, so many things are likely to happen that emphasize uh, the radical side, that uh, we will go through a very uh-huh. rough period. And when I say we, I don't mean Israel, I mean uh, the democracies and So event you, event.
0: you stand with your former colleague of the Depar- in the Department of Government uh, at uh, Harvard, uh, uh, who sees... Who? who? Uh, what's his name? You know, the one who sees civilizations in conflict in oh, Huntington. Oh, uh, Sam Huntington. Uh,
1: And he sees two great threats, China one and the Islamic world the other. I'm less concerned about China. China is a different kind of threat. It's a much long... China has no compulsion to destroy the United States. China has a compulsion to have the United States in a position where we can't interfere with it, which may have the practical consequence of getting us... But the Islamic
0: world poses a larger threat to Western values?
1: Well, I think the Islamic world feels more aggrieved Mm-hmm. and uh, more hostile. I don't think the Chinese are hostile so much as uh, as that uh, they're going back to their historic tradition of being the dominant country in the mm-hmm. region. The practical difference in any ten-year period may not be all that great, but I don't think there's this anything comparable impetus. Well, what is the worst case foreseeable regarding
0: what happens in the Islamic world as it bears upon us, and how do we ready ourselves for
1: that uh, most dangerous of all conditions. Well, the worst case conceivable is that you have a global recession in in the West, uh, and that under, under those conditions, then uh, a number of Muslim states like Turkey, Egypt, uh, become fundamentalists. That they, they will then unite and that this will sweep into uh, India and, uh, and, and And first of all, it will overthrow Saudi Arabia. I'm giving you the worst case uh, So that then they have available the oil weapon uh, And that then the Islamic populations which are seeping into Europe as the Europe European demography declines uh, It becomes so unfavorable uh, will create a restive uh, 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 problem in Europe, but you are asking me for the worst case. I don't think that this needs to happen. The likely and case, then. It, the likely case is that Islamic fundamentalism will uh, uh, cont- will continue. That if we if we can maintain. Uh, Turkey as a secular, non-radical state, if we can maintain Egypt as a moderate state, uh, that it can be contained. And how
0: does that bear upon the prospect, and how dim for that matter is the prospect, of
1: really pacifying the Israeli situation? I think if fundamentalism does not become dominant, uh, the Israeli situation can can be uh, pacified, but not without great stress. It's interesting that when it looked as if Israel had enough support to launch a really punishing retaliation, that even Hamas came around to supporting the ceasefire. And if Hamas is forced into a prolonged ceasefire, and if then no, if if <laughs> then. Uh, uh, if one looked at the Egyptian Jordanian proposal to the Israelis that really had some element, many elements in it that were quite reasonable One was ceasefire first. The second is a negotiation about uh, implementing existing agreements now those are a calming <laughs> Negotiation they have a and out of that could emerge a de facto coexistence uh, which then would be harder to challenge uh, by the radical groups like Hamas, then now when everything is fluid and when the only occupation of, of many young people is to throw stones. With just a minute or two left, um,
0: speak, if you would, to um, your two successors in the present government, that is to Condoleezza Rice uh, and to General Powell. What broad advice would you give? the National Security Advisor,
1: and the Secretary of State? Well, first of all, they're living in a different world uh, from the one uh, uh, one I did. And uh, I think the Secretary of State uh, has has a number of of jobs he has to run the department and make sure it has high morale, its power, it's already done. Uh, he needs to conduct day-to-day, uh, supervise day-to-day negotiations, but he has to put before his bureaucracy and even more before his president and then to the American people a vision of the future towards which he is working. Uh, that is a process that couldn't possibly be accomplished in a uh, in a brief in the brief period of time uh, he's been in office. But I think that Powell has created the conditions from which this can emerge. And for Condoleezza Rice? Condoleezza Rice, well... uh, Who's arguing non-intervention wherever possible. Well, Condoleezza, one has to remember uh, any uh, security adviser has only one client, and that's the President of the United States. So every security adviser reflects the necessities. Of the Secretary of State plus, of course, his or her own uh, personality. And I have not yet seen exactly how uh, President Bush visualizes the role of security advisor. She's certainly extremely influential with him on a day-to-day basis. And uh, so she uh, certainly has a significant role in the coordination of day-to-day policy. To what extent President Bush wants the long-range thinking coordinated out of the White House, or to what extent he wants it done, either by the Vice President or the Secretary of State, that is one of those issues that only the evolution of the administration will make clear. Thank you, sir. For Uh, patiently submitting to a rather long
0: interrogation, and it's been a... No, I I genuinely enjoyed it. I I appreciate your saying that. And let us just once again make clear that these ideas, and uh, in far fuller context, are developed in the new book by Henry Kissinger, Does America Need a Foreign Policy Towards a uh, Diplomacy for the 21st Century? Simon & Schuster, the publishers. Thanks once again for joining us.